Good morning. My name is Ben Bostaff. I uh, serve as one of the elders here at West Classic Chapel. Pastor Joe is away on vacation and uh, he's visiting family. Um, just please be in prayer for him as he's away, that he would enjoy vacation, enjoy time with his family, but also just prayer as God uh, would grant him traveling mercies coming back to us. Um, Pastor Joe's been preaching Sunday by Sunday, verse by verse, through the book of Romans. This week we're going to take a brief recess from that format, uh, but we're not leaving the book of Romans. Uh, last December, our men's ministry held a weekend conference um, where they asked four different elders to speak on various topics. Um, the topic that I was asked to speak on um, was uh, titled, uh, A Disciple of God is Submissive. Um, this sermon is going to be a reworking of that. In fact, if I had a subtitle for this sermon, that's exactly what it would be. A, a disciple of God is submissive. Men, if you're at the conference, I want to encourage you to dig deeper into this truth. Men, if you're unable to attend the conference, here's your chance to catch up. And ladies, if you've ever wanted to know what's discussed at a men's conference, here it is. Um, our text comes from Romans 12.1. It can be found on page 803 in the seat Bible, and you can find one either um, in the seat in front of you or, or the seat below you if you need one. Um, I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to pray. The text reads as follows. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Lord, Father God, again, we, we just come before you. We thank you again so much for today being the Lord's Day, a day that you have made, as you have made every day. We thank you for the worship this morning and just uh, the time spent praising you. We thank you for the missions report that Tom had shared and just uh, the ministering that's going on there. Lord, we just uh, pray that you'd be with us now as we, we deal with uh, what we can often view as a difficult topic of submission. I just uh, praise that you would pray you would season my words with the fruit of the Spirit and that you would... Uh, Help us and guide us all as we need it. Just pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let me give you a quick overview so you, that you'll know where we're going. Um, I'm going to have a semi-brief introduction. We will spend a small amount of time on the first point, simple but hard. Next, we will spend most of our time on the second point, which is God's great mercy. And then lastly, we're going to have some biblical application. When I was first asked to speak at the men's conference last year, I didn't know what I was speaking on. I kind of volunteered, sure, I'll speak, you know, and, and it wasn't until later that I received my topic. Once I found out submission was my topic, I thought that either God or the leaders of the men's ministry had a real rich sense of humor. Hey, let's have the guy that can't sit still, that always has to be in motion, whose brain is always figuring and processing, who just, just is always going, you know, the strong type A personality. Let's have him talk about submission. Um... God often uses things to humble us, and that was one of them. <laughs> um, submission is not a word that most of us hear, and we think, oh boy, we're going to get to submit today. It's going to be great. Often when we hear the word submission or submit, our defenses go up. We start looking for ways to do anything else but submit. We hear these words, and we want to fight against them. We want to resist. 
I mean, we really don't have a problem with submission as long as we're the one that's being submitted to. Have you seen those silly one-line-saying t-shirts that are meant to bring humor to those that read them? One of them says, teamwork, everyone doing what I say. So even on a humorous level, submission is cast in a bad light. What God has intended for good, which we will explore later, has been twisted and made appear bad. So I'm going to do my best with God's help to be encouraging and maybe even have you think a little bit differently of how submission is viewed. First point, simple but hard. If we were to summarize the text, the text that we just read, I think it can be done in three simple words. Live for God. That sounds so simple. In fact, it is simple. This should be one of the shortest sermons ever. Romans 12.1 says live for God. We'll see you next week. But in fact, it's also one of the hardest things we have to do. We will spend the rest of our lives on this ball called the earth, working with this, perfecting it, struggling with it. This is called sanctification. The ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. What does it mean to submit? The dictionary says to accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another to subject oneself to. At this point in the men's conference, I asked two gentlemen that were sitting there in different rows to get up and change seats with each other. So they did. They got up and they moved. Now I'm not, I repeat, I'm not going to ask this side of the sanctuary to get up and sit on this side because what would be really cool is if I asked all the people in the back to switch with the people in the front. (laughs) Now again, I'm not going to do that either. But what if I did? What would happen? In such setting uh, as public speaking, such as this, we subject ourselves to whoever has the microphone, whoever is leading or teaching the class or discussion. We subject or submit ourselves by choosing to stay and listen, or we choose not to by leaving or checking the fantasy football mashups for today. Every time I've had the opportunity to preach, I've tried to meet with Joe afterwards and ask him, Joe, please be brutally honest with me. What did you think? I like you to critique my sermon because he does this for a living and I don't. (laughs) It says, "Did, did I preach Christ? Was the message clear? Did it make sense? Do you feel like it flowed? What was bad about it? How can I improve? I asked him if I could share this one comment that he gave and he gave me that permission. It went something to the effect of, and again, this is referring to having the two gentlemen switch seats. Ben, at first, I got upset with you. Did you really need to make those two guys change seats? Really? Really? Was that necessary? But then after it happened, it made sense, the point you were trying to get across. These two gentlemen could have chose not to switch and say, I'm comfortable here. I'm not listening to that goofy guy up front. Either way, I would have had my example. Such a simple task, yet it could have been made so hard. And for a moment, even in the mind of a person who was not even asked to move, the defenses went up and the urge to resist was present. There was not anything evil or underhanded. It was just a simple request to ask two people to switch seats. God's great mercy. In the verse Romans 12.1, it starts out with the word, therefore. Again, at the risk of being cliché, but we need to examine what the therefore is therefore. 
The Word tells us we need context. We need the Scripture that comes before this to, under, to be understood because it has bearing on the verse that follows. Simply, what Paul is referring to when he wrote this is he's referring to what he's written in chapter 1 through 11. Now, we don't have time to go through the entirety of those chapters. I'm going to leave that to Joe. Um, but I am going to summarize a few verses. Um, I'm sure that most of you are very familiar with them. Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, the definitive word all is used. That means there are no exceptions. All have sinned. And because all have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. Well, what is the glory of God? It is God's righteousness. It's his perfection. It's to be in his presence. It is a place without sin. Now, I want you all to take a moment and think about that. A place without sin, no evil deeds, no bad words, no nasty thoughts, no selfishness, no lies, no deceit, no scandals, no hidden agendas, no taking advantage of, no cheating, no slanted opinions, no bias, no racism, no favoritism, no gossip. Shall I go on? Imagine a place without all of that. I mean, we're not even talking about the good things that might be in that place. We're just talking about it being void of all the bad things. And because of sin, you and I and everyone else that has committed that, or the sin we are committing, or the sin we will commit, are separated from God's glory. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin has a wage. Well, what's a wage? A wage is a payment. Someone who gets... Someone who um, wages a payment someone gets for doing something. If an employee at McDonald's or the mines or at Amazon goes to work and does whatever it is that particular job acquires, they get a wage. If you do this, you will, you will get that. If you sin, the wage is death. And again, because we have sinned, as we read in Romans 3.23, we all deserve death. And because we have sinned, we have fallen short of the glory of God, meaning we are separated from God. The death here being talked about is not just a physical death. Now, we all know as part of the curse, Adam and Eve being the first to sin, that our bodies are going to break down and they're going to die. Our bodies are very frail, and as we age, uh, this becomes a reality. For those of you that are under 35, when you get there, you'll understand what I mean. But again, the wage is death. And it's also talking about being separated from God forever. Now, remember a little while ago how we imagined this place with those sin? You know, to coin mercy me, I can only imagine. Now I want you to imagine a place without God. Let that process for a second. That's not a very pleasant thought, is it? But the wonderful thing is, that verse does not end with death. There's hope. The second half of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but eternal life sounds a lot better to me. So, so, so there's this gift of something called eternal life through this guy called Jesus. So what's a gift? Often we think of gift, we think of wrapping paper and a bow and a card and a tag, and it looks really pretty because my wife put it together and not me. When does that gift become yours? 
Some might say, well, the gift is mine. It has my name on it. Well, I would agree with that statement. But when does it really become yours? If you did not go over to it, if you did not pick it up, if you didn't unwrap it, if you didn't open the box, if you did not use it, if you did not enjoy what was inside, then is that gift really yours? It only really becomes yours once you receive it. If you don't receive it, it can't do you any good. It cannot be used for what it was intended for. Does a gift have any strings attached? If it did, it would not be a gift. True gifts are free. So again, eternal life, as we covered, is the opposite of eternal death. Instead of being separated from God forever, you could be with God forever. And again, I don't know about you, but I like the sound of eternal life a lot better. Well, how does this eternal life thing happen? Well, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So sin has this wage of death that has to be paid. There's no way around it. God loved us so much that while we were still in our mess of sin, he sent his son, Christ, to die for us. How do I receive this gift? Romans 10, 9, and 10. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is your mouth that you confess and are justified and with your heart that you believed and are saved. Believing in Christ as our Savior, knowing he died for our sins and paid the wage of sin and that he was raised from the dead to show that he has mastery over death and that has conquered it. There are many other places in Scripture that unfold the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. We are saved by God's gift, not by what we do. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, we need to confess and we will be, we will be forgiven. And of course, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again, the eternal life that is given by God through his Son taking our place, which again brings us all the way back to our text, Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercy. Again, God sending his Son to die for us, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Again, to summarize the verse in three verses, live for God. Okay, so we have this sin problem and Christ is the only answer. But have you guys ever really sat down and thought about sin? When we do something sinful, doesn't it make you feel off, bad, dirty, almost like you're carrying a weight? Well, I'm going to do my best to try and quantify sin, to give us a representation so we can just try and understand what Christ really did on the cross for us. So sin is a weight. I'm going to use this brick to represent that weight. It was at this point in the men's conference, I asked my favorite father-in-law, who I think is my only father-in-law as well, I asked him to come up and, uh, yeah, I pick on him a bit, because uh, he is, uh, he's actually one of the most godly men I know, so I know he'll forgive me. Um, but um, I asked him to come up and, and give me, help me with a demonstration. I'm not going to ask him to come up today. 
Um, but again, he helped me with the standard administration as I describe it. So I came up and we made a fictitious scenario where Scott committed three fictitious sins. And for each sin, I handed him a brick. So at the end of the first day, because he was going to sin three times a day according to our scenario, he had three four-pound bricks. So he's holding 12 pounds. And so at the end of day two, he had six four-pound bricks. So he's holding 24 pounds. Simple math, right? Well, when day three came, I gave to give him more bricks. He's like, wait a minute, I've got to readjust these because this is cumbersome. And so now he's holding 36 pounds. And on day four, he's holding 48 pounds. And then I let him stand there. And I continued to talk on, and I said, you know, and I went on, and I said, hey, Scott, would you like to go fishing? No, wait, your hands are kind of full, aren't they? And then I says, well, you know, I got this home project I'm working on. If you could help me with it, no, that, that's not going to work either. Sin is a weight, and unless we let Christ take that weight from us, unless we let Christ pay sin's wage, we're not going to be free of it. Unless we accept that free gift of salvation, it doesn't do us any good. So let's stick to our three sins a day, and let's say on an average, an average person lives 70 years. That's over 76,000 sins. Now, if we were going back to our brick, our four-pound brick, and we were to translate that, that would be 304,000 pounds of bricks, or 152 tons. It's a lot of weight for one person. But let's take it beyond that. We know Christ died for me, and we always hear that statement, Christ died for me, absolutely. But again, going back to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Christ died for the world. Currently, there's about 7.7 billion people in the world. To give you an idea of how many people that is, if you took everyone and standed them shoulder and shoulder next to each other and gave them about four square feet, it's a two-by-two two area, it's a little bit bigger than standing room only at your favorite concert, the world's population would take up about 1,100 square miles. You could fit that inside the state of Rhode Island. To make that, bring that closer to home, you could fit the world's population in the size of Itasca County twice. And that doesn't include the 620 square miles the lakes cover. So again, Christ has died for the world. And I did some research by some population and math experts much more genius than I. And they figure the population of the world around the time of Christ was 300 million. Okay, so we're going to take the 70 years of people, starting now, we're going to take 70 years of people worth at the time of Christ, about 300 million, and these same math geniuses, and again, it was quite incredible how they came up with these numbers, they feel at the time of the flood, you know, Noah the Great Flood, they feel there was approximately somewhere around 9 billion people on the earth at that time. I'm like, wait a minute, that can't be right. Come on, that's, that's like crazy. Well, when you sit and you figure out some of the math and the numbers they went through, like Methuselah and a lot of people were living into their 900s, and they were having babies a lot longer than we generally have babies, so they have more time to produce because we figure they age slower. So when you start to crunch some of those numbers, it was really impressive how they came up with those numbers. But again, let's, so let's just pretend we have the 7.7 .7 billion today, we have the 300 million at the time of Christ, and we have the 9 billion at the time of the flood. So only taking three 70-year chunks out of the entirety of human existence, of creation of the world. 
That's one quadrillion, 292 trillion sins, or two and a half trillion tons of four-pound bricks. That's what Christ died for, not for bricks, but for sins. If we're honest with ourselves, we sin more than an average of three times a day. And at this point, the world is going to continue to spin on, so more people are being born. So this is just a scratch at the weight of sin that was placed on Christ when he died on the cross. I'm not sure this side of heaven that we will actually be able to begin to understand that concept. How great is God's mercy? It's not a question, that's a statement. How great is God's mercy? Again, to take us back to our text, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. Live for God. One of the ways we live for God is by submission. Again, the verse is referring to living as, uh, offering our bodies as living sacrifices to give up. I'd like to challenge you that when you read Scripture and it asks us to, to submit, when you read Scripture and it asks us to do something, I would like you to, instead of just viewing it as, oh, it's submission, I'd like you to instead view it with this phrase in front of, if this phrase in front of it. In view of God's mercy and then whatever it is we're being challenged to do. Application. So government, civil authorities, it's kind of a hot button in our issue, of a hot button issue with our world today. Well, let's go back to God's word. What does it say? Let's see if we can find some help from there. Second Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Submit yourselves to the Lord for the sake of every authority instituted among men whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants for God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. How would things be different if Christians actually lived this out? In view of God's mercy, here's something simple, how would this change the way I drive? Speed limits, stop signs, passing lanes, cell phones. I rewired my garage a little while ago, and that was just I wanted to add some outlets, make it more convenient. The state of Minnesota says I need to have a permit to rewire the electricity in my garage. Well, come on, it's inside my garage, no one will know, it's really going to benefit me, is this really that necessary? In view of God's mercy, I need a permit to rewire my garage. Now, obviously, God is the ultimate authority, so we're not talking about times when government says stuff and passes laws that forces individuals to do something against God. Okay? Look in the Old Testament, Daniel and Joseph. Here are two very, very godly men who both worked for and lived with extremely corrupt governments. They submitted to the authorities over them, but they submitted to God first. Let's make a fictitious situation. Let's pretend our U.S. Constitution was changed. Let's pretend the Second Amendment was eliminated and all guns are outlawed, and if you own guns or ammo, you're required just to turn them in. Now, in this same pretend, pretend scenario... We're planning on living in the same country, under the same government, and not starting a revolution. 
a few of us might be squirming in our seats. But what about hunting? What about personal protection? What about family heirlooms? All gone. In view of God's mercy as Christians, what are we supposed to do? How about at the workplace? Let us continue with 1 Peter 2, 18 through 19. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. In view of God's mercy, we are to submit to our bosses, our project leaders, the heads of our department. How about church dynamics? Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for this would be at no advantage to you. Now, at our church, we don't just have the elders, but we also have a lot of ministry leaders. So I'm going to use uh, one of them as an example. I, I spoke to Chris Dorn, who heads up women's ministry. And for many, 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 many years, she has led the women's book study um, on Wednesday nights. In fact, uh, ladies, if you're not involved with Awana or youth group with helping with that, or you're not involved in the off-site prayer meeting on Wednesdays, I would encourage you to check out the book study. She has led this for many, many, many years, but this year, God has placed Emily Lindner in that role. How well do you think that aspect of women's ministry would work if Chris did not to submit to Emily's leadership on Wednesday night? What if Chris decided to bring her own different book and decided to do that during the time while all the ladies were gathering? Or what if the other ladies in the room decided they'd rather have Chris lead them instead of what Emily's doing? How well would that aspect of the women's ministry function? Sticking with this point, 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each one of us should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms. Again, our gifts, they come from God. At the men's conference, I held up three objects. One was a milk crate, one was a plastic shopping bag, and one was my favorite coffee mug. And then I said to the men, now let's pretend that I'm awesome. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but we're just going to pretend, okay? We're going to pretend that I made these three items, that I designed them, that I crafted them, that I made the materials they're made out of, I constructed them. Absolutely every aspect of these three vessels I'm responsible for. Now how silly would it sound if the milk crate started complaining how it could not hold hot liquids like the coffee mug? Or the plastic bag started complaining about the milk crate because the milk crate could carry heavier objects. Or the coffee cup started griping because it couldn't be molded or shaped around something to keep that something dry like the plastic bag can. How silly does it sound to have these inanimate objects complain about each other, comparing and contrasting their differences in a negative light? As far as I am above these items, God as our creator is infinitely above us. Again, going back to our example on the women's ministry, Chris submits to Emily's leadership in view of God's mercy. That is why that happens. In view of God's mercy, we are to submit to one another, to, to submit to one another as Christians. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. During my first year of marriage or so, my favorite father-in-law came to me with an issue. He had something against me. There was some sin he had against me, and I wasn't even aware of it. It was a conversation that I don't think I'll ever forget. 
Here he is exercising Matthew 18, bringing my attention to something that needed to be dealt with. I was not approached in the aspect of I'm right and you're wrong. I was approached with the intent of reconciliation as it is stated in Scripture. I had a choice. In view of God's mercy, I could submit to him on this issue that he was bringing before me or I could choose not to. I know it was not the most comfortable conversation that he ever had, but it was necessary. And in that instance, I chose to submit. What about submitting to our enemies? Matthew 5, 38, 42. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him also the other. If someone wants to take your tunic, leave him your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile with him, go too. Give to one who asks you and do not turn away someone who wants to borrow from you. In view of God's mercy, we as Christians shouldn't go to social media and tell the world how we really feel. In view of God's mercy, we are to bear any injury for the sake of the gospel. In that situation, when my enemy is wronging me, which is going to speak louder volumes of love to him? The, echoing the mercy, the view of God's mercy that he has bestowed upon me, which is available for that same individual, or trying to make sure that justice is served, trying to make sure that I am proved right, that I am compensated, that I am you fill in the blank. Which is going to have greater kingdom impact? Romans 12, 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful, do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There it is, simply laid out in Scripture, yet we find it so hard. In view of God's mercy, we are to submit to those that might be against us. What about giving and offerings? 1 Corinthians 16 talks about that and is addressed, and I'm not going to go into detail on it, because if you go into our sermon archives online, Pastor Joe did a phenomenal job walking through of that. But simply put, in view of God's mercy, we are to give. That should be our incentive to give, not a tax write-off and not because somebody else is watching. Again, back to our main text. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I want to draw your attention to the start of the verse. Paul writes, I urge you. This is not a command. It's a suggestion. You have a choice to live for God or not, to submit to God or not. Paul urges us, in view of God's mercy, to submit, to live as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to Him. To live in a manner that would please God. To give up what we want to do and live for God. Do you know the problem with a living sacrifice? It has the ability to crawl off the altar. 
Submission is simple, yet it is very hard. The best and greatest example of that is Christ. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to God that God would let this cup pass before him if there was any other way. But Christ still said, not my wills, but yours be done. Do you know what the most beautiful part of submission is? We see it there at the end of the verse. This is your spiritual act of worship. When we submit, when we live as God wants us to live, it is worship. When we have a submissive heart, it is worship to God. In a moment, we'll have a benediction and prayer. Then the worship team's going to come up and they'll have a closing song. After that song, I'll be up front if you have any questions. My benediction is simple and hard. Live for God. Lord Father God, again, we, we come before you. Lord, it is difficult. I mean, we, we read your word and we see what it says, but it is difficult to live it out. We, we are influenced by the things around us, myself included, especially myself. Lord, we pray that you'd be with each one of us. We pray that in view of your mercy, we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, and that would be our spiritual act of worship. We again, we thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.